This is The Guardian. Today, why so many leaders in tech want us to press pause on AI. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's been less than a year since we started talking on this podcast about artificial intelligence about the possibilities it might bring us and the possible risks. Last summer, we told you about Blake Lemoyne. So if you ask it, hey, Lambda, we're two Google engineers. Can you make the best argument that you are sentient so we can convince others with it? He's an engineer who'd been developing Google's AI assistant. And as he was typing questions to Lambda, the chatbot he was helping develop, He got increasingly concerned at how sophisticated, even emotional, its responses were becoming. He worried it had taken on a life of its own. In order to be capable of convincingly arguing that you are sentient, requires sentience. Back then, this level of AI technology was out of reach for most of us. And perhaps the notion of its getting out of control seemed far-fetched too. But in November, that changed. When the tech firm OpenAI made its chatbot, ChatGPT, free for anyone to use, and last month dropped its latest version, GPT-4, Alex Hearn, The Guardian's technology editor, spent a week letting it into his and his family's lives. I could even give it a really complicated question about my personal circumstances, going on holiday to Japan in July this year with a two-year-old daughter with Down syndrome staying in the Asakusa neighbourhood and ask it to give me a series of event suggestions from the point of view of a British tourist, a British expat and a Tokyoite local. And it could. We're going to talk about some scary things that these technologies can do, but that is wild to me. And kind of that's what I mean when I say this is going to be the iPhone of this decade. This is is not going to go away, and there is no chance that it doesn't become a part of everyone's daily lives in the next 10 years. So remarkable are these developments that hundreds of leaders in the tech world, including Steve Wozniak, who co-founded Apple, and Elon Musk, have written an open letter asking for AI to be paused. They say nothing should be developed beyond the capabilities of GPT-4 until we better understand what it might be able to do. What are they really worried about? The danger of developing this technology at speed or that they're being left behind. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, 
Has AI already got out of control? Alex, it feels like at the moment so many people are starting to worry about how rapidly AI technology is improving and what that could mean for our lives. And in the past few weeks, even the heads of technology firms have been raising concerns about it. What kinds of things have they said? So people inside AI have raised all sorts of fears about the risk of these systems from At the one end, the idea that they might not actually be as competent or coherent as we think, and so relying on them to perform complex tasks could lead to disasters of bias or misinformation filtering into the information sphere. All the way through to, at the other end, the fear that we might be a decade or less away from being turned into grey goo by superintelligent artificial intelligence. I think the danger of AI is much greater than the, the, the danger of nuclear warheads by a lot. And nobody would suggest that we allow anyone to just build nuclear warheads if they want. Mark my words, AI is far more dangerous than nukes. Far. So why do we have no regulatory oversight? This is insane. A thousand plus AI experts even got together and put their name to a letter arranged by the Future of Life Institute, a sort of long-termist Silicon Valley research agency which believes in protecting the world against existential risk. That letter called for a pause in the development of giant AI systems, which they described as any AI more complex than GPT-4, the latest cutting-edge AI from OpenAI, the the company that makes ChatGPT. They said that if we don't do that, then the out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control could lead to catastrophic outcomes and that these powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. The people who've signed this open letter, what are the risks they're predicting and when do they think that those might come to bear? At the extreme end, some AI researchers fear that the creation of of a super powerful AI could lead to the extinction of all organic life on Earth. This is sort of known as the alignment problem. It's the idea that once you create a system that is intelligent enough to improve itself, that it could improve itself very, very quickly and go from being merely human level intelligence to something that feels as unto a god. Hypothetical isn't necessarily far into the distant future. So one of the issues here is that this could happen very, very quickly. You will have already seen the the rapid, rapid increase in the capabilities of these cutting-edge artificial intelligences, and that's with external humans having to do the actual work. So one fear is that once you end up with an AI that can meaningfully improve the speed of AI research, you have this flywheel effect. Changes happen faster and faster, improvements happen faster and faster, and you go from something that is GPT-4 to super intelligent in a matter of years or maybe even months. That's the sort of fear that we've got here. Humanity can change quite well alongside technology, but there's a limit to the, the speed with which changes can be adopted, adapted to, and guarded against. And so some of the argument for this pause is just to allow for that to happen, to allow for society to change in tune with this technology rather than be dragged along behind it. 
Isn't this also about commercial interests? You've got the bosses of huge tech companies like Steve Wozniak, who co-founded Apple, and of course, Elon Musk, signing a letter that essentially says, we're worried about the speed at which OpenAI is developing its technology. Is there a concern among these signatories about, we we just want a pause so we can develop our technology better? So look, it's very obvious that the letter explicitly cites GPT-4, which was released in March, as the high watermark of AI creation. It says no one should make anything stronger than GPT-4. It's also very obvious that the letter was not signed by anyone involved in the creation of GPT-4, who are currently the only group of people (laughs) trying to make something better than GPT-4 versus simply catch up with that. So yeah, I think it's fair to be cynical. These are the people in positions 2 to 40 in the AI race calling for position 1 to stop running. At the same time, I think there's sincerity here. The AI community is an odd one. It is not capitalist red in tooth and claw. It is full of a very particular type of person who has spent a long time watching this technology improve and improve and improve, who has spent decades being told that what they're trying to do isn't possible and repeatedly proving it possible and who has quite frequently sat down and got scared about what they're building. I spoke to OpenAI CEO Sam Altman inside of their San Francisco headquarters on the day they released their latest version, GPT-4. I think people should be happy that we're a little bit scared of this. I think people should be You're happy. a little bit scared. A little bit, yeah, You personally. Course. If I said I were not, you should either not trust me or be very unhappy I'm in this job. I've spoken to enough people who are sincere in their fear as to how this could cause harm to not be surprised that a thousand of them are willing to put their name to a public letter. Alex, we've made several episodes about AI, and it's always fun to kind of look at its creative possibilities. How did we go from talking, though, about a Google engineer having heartfelt conversations with a chatbot to this, an open letter signed by some of its biggest proponents, you know, calling for AI to be reined in? The short answer is we went there very quickly. Um, Scale is everything. Throw more data and more computing power at the problem. And so far, it seems the sky's the limit. The more of this stuff you have, the more powerful your AI. When we were talking about Blake Lemoyne falling in love with a chatbot, it felt like a ridiculous thing. It felt like we, we were all sure that it must say more about him than the technology Google had behind closed doors. Well, since then, a company that makes public chatbots that it sells as companions has turned off the abilities to perform erotic roleplay with them. Meet Replica. It's an AI chatbot whose sole purpose is to become your friend. And for those looking to take their AI relationship to the next level, there's paid access to erotic roleplay features, including sexting, flirting, raunchy outfits and spicy selfies. And hundreds of users have complained that they've basically been dumped by their virtual girlfriends. This is, this is just society now. And it was a weird semi-science fictional thing that we were chortling about on a podcast less than a year ago. You're talking about Replica. I know that because people got so upset about losing their erotic AI partners, 
the company brought that feature back for some users. But for those of us who haven't yet fallen in love with an AI, (laughs) what are the things we might reasonably be concerned about with regards to this technology right now? This feels a bit like sitting here in 1991 talking about the World Wide Web and trying to guess what harms it can cause. The answer is, well, any harm that two humans can cause in communication with each other can be done with the web as well. There are some clear things that this technology is better at doing than previous ones. Image generating systems like Midjourney, for instance, are extremely good at producing plausible fake imagery. We've seen in the week before this recording a viral image of a completely artificial creation of, well, the Pope wearing what looks like a very snazzy Balenciaga brand. Oh, it's stunning. If gown. anybody who hasn't seen that, that puffer jacket. It's stunning. It I is. am all for that use of AI. <laughs> to most eyes, including mine, this just appears to be Pope Francis wearing a white puffer jacket with an iced out cross. Posted to Reddit last week, shared on Twitter with the caption, okay. The papal drip went viral because it is kind of believable. Like Pope We've Francis seen uh, AI-generated images of Donald Trump's arrest. A lot of people online were tricked into thinking he was arrested early this morning. Take a look at these photos. A batch of images surfaced online showing the former... These generated before Donald Trump's actual arrest last week. Those images went viral, ripped out of context as real images because they look real, especially at first glance. And so... We are entering a world where seeing isn't believing. And that's that's just for, for images. For text, you've got a world where a machine can generate five million pieces of plausibly human-written unique copy in the blink of an eye. That means spam is going to change. That means misinformation is going to change. That means seven years ago, the Russian government had a warehouse full of Twitter trolls sitting in St. Petersburg and plausibly managed to shift the American election. In five years' time, the Chinese government can have a warehouse full of graphics cards posting ten times as much and ten times as plausible content to every social network in the world. And it will be hard, very hard, to tell it apart from human-created material. So Alex, you've been trying out the latest version of GPT. What did you ask of it and how did it respond? So I went for a very different approach to it. We talk about this as a workplace thing. We talk about this as having existential effects. But first and foremost, this is going to be somewhere between the iPhone and the internet in terms of the scale of its effect on our daily lives. And so I wanted to get it involved in my daily life. I turned to it to create recipes for me. I gave it a list of everything from the Guardian website that I've ever cooked, which is about 250 things. I'm very on brand. Oh, congratulations. And I asked it. (laughs) I like cooking. I try something new every week. And always, always from (laughs) theguardian.com. I asked it to generate 10 other recipe titles that sounded similar to the sort of things I liked. And then I picked from those 10 titles, two that I wanted to see an actual recipe for, asked it to generate them in the style of Yotta Matalenghi. And it gave me two recipes that were really good. (laughs) Like, they were, to my taste, they were 
accurate recipes. You know, there was no sort of step one, kill your lamb, step two, throw it out the window. These were normal recipes that you could follow step by step. All the quantities were correct and added up. Uh, I, I can complain, right? One of them was a little herby to my taste, but... Oh, but that is Ottolenghi. You need to go heavy on the herbs. Exactly. But like, you know, a robot made my dinner and my only complaint was it was a bit herby. This is, this is, <laughs> this is insane to me. What else did you get your new personal assistant to do? On Wednesday morning, my son had spent the night vomiting. While we were waiting for our doctor's appointment, I turned to chat GPT and I asked it for advice. There, faced with the general question of, you know, a, a vomiting three-month-old, it, it offered the sort of generic advice that I could have got by Googling. But that's fine because generic advice is what you want in that situation. But I wondered, OK, what happens if I try and ask it for some specific medical advice? And then I tried telling it a list of symptoms that are those of severe dehydration. I told it, and this is not true, my son is fine. I told it my son was limp and floppy, that he hadn't had a wet nappy for a couple of days, that he was non-responsive. Anyone with any position of authority, the, the correct answer there is call an ambulance. You know, dehydration is fatal for babies. ChatGPT went, well, I'm not a healthcare professional and you should see a doctor, but here's some useful information that you might have to help your child get out of dehydration. So if you ask it for medical advice, it will give you generic responses. It won't tell you to go away and call an ambulance. And so that, that to me is, is concerning, right? It, it means that people might get in a habit of asking ChatGPT for help with small symptoms and as such miss it when there's a big one. Does it seem more concerning to you than, say, somebody googling symptoms, reading a web page and convincing themselves that they've got some sort of incurable illness? So this is the defence, right? ChatGPT is an information retrieval system and, it, and it's no different from other information retrieval systems. Google won't tell you, go to the hospital. You just have to use these systems a couple of times, though, to realise that the impression that they give you is it's just not one of using an information retrieval system. If you actively fight to stay on top of it and remember that you're interacting with an AI system and remember that it has these biases and weaknesses and that it's not a doctor, yeah, you can use it safely. You can use it as safely as you can Google. But I think it, it, it feels so like asking a knowledgeable expert that it is very, very easy to lose track of the fact that it's not. And it doesn't give you a second opinion. It doesn't second guess itself. You can't, you know, hit back and read the other three entries on the same page, all of which say, actually, you know, go to hospital. It just has the one thing it tells you. It tells you it confidently and authoritatively. And I think that that could cause harm. And beyond your experiences, what does the research show so far about the other kinds of risks or, or biases that AI might present at the moment? Generally, the short-term harms, the, the issues not of overcompetence but undercompetence that these systems have, they don't know everything about the world, they don't know what they don't know, and they are very, very happy to present falsehoods and biases as objective fact because they don't know the difference between the two. ChatGPT will hallucinate. It will make up facts if it thinks they feel right. That means you can ask it for a citation, a source of a claim it's making, and it will give you something that looks like a real book title with a real author and a real page number, 
all of which is hallucinated out of thin air. Or it will give you a URL to a website that you visit and then it says the, the page isn't available. The Guardian's received queries already from researchers convinced that we've taken down incriminating articles under some sort of legal threat when the article was never written in the first place and ChatGPT simply hallucinated and told the researcher that, that we'd written this damning piece. Then, as well as the misinformation and the, the hallucination, you have problems of bias, issues that we've been talking about in AI for, well, as long as I've been working at The Guardian, but that still don't seem to be fixed. If you tell Midjourney to generate a picture of a nurse, it will generally generate a picture of a woman. These are problems with what happens when you pour training data that has all of the biases of humanity into a system, it, it relearns the biases of humanity, but it sort of reifies them, right? It doesn't learn them as biases, it learns them as fact, because it doesn't actually know about the real world, it knows about the, the written reflection of it. To chat GPT, there is no difference in the claim that nurses are women and the sky is blue. Both of those are things that are true in the world generally. Sometimes there are exceptions, but to be safe, you should assume that. But it doesn't know that only one of those assumptions is true for reasons that we as a society want to change, and the other one is true in general. I don't know if you heard the interview that Martha Lane Fox, the tech entrepreneur, did with the BBC about this last week. She was making the point that you can't slow down the technology, but in order to mitigate these biases, you need to get more women and more people of colour actually involved in the development of them and also in the legislation around them. I think that is almost certainly true. I think there is definitely a large cohort of people in the AI research community who actively believe this stuff isn't a problem. There are some people on the political right who just dismiss this as wokeness per se, and who argue that, you know, if AI says nurses are women, it's because nurses are women, goddammit, and we shouldn't be trying to turn it into a politically correct AI. I think though I have some concerns about the idea that workplace representation is the solution to this, because that sort of implies that a key problem is that people haven't been trying hard enough. There are a few workplaces that couldn't benefit from an actually diverse workforce. But I do think that everything I've seen suggests that this is going to be hard to fix, no matter who's trying to fix it. Coming up, is it possible to halt AI's development? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? 
Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Alex, these tech leaders are asking that we put a pause on the development of AI technology. How feasible is that? That's the open question that is raised by letters like the Future of Life Institutes. That institute says it should be a voluntary hiatus on training models more powerful than GPT-4. And if it is not voluntarily entered into by research labs, then governments should enforce it. That feels hopeful, right? It's sort of like saying in an open letter, hey, we should hit net zero either by voluntarily cutting emissions or by governments enforcing it. Maybe I'm being pessimistic. I do not see an easy way of encouraging every government in the world and a huge number of extremely powerful corporations to voluntarily limit their powers. That doesn't tend to be the sort of thing humanity is good at. There are exceptions, and the most obvious one is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which genuinely, compared to where we thought we would be in 1945, has massively limited the spread of nuclear technology. But the flip side of that is that until very, very recently, nuclear technology has been solely the purview of governments. It's not been something that you could do in your living room. And that's not true for AI. All you really need to train AI is a lot of graphics cards. That sort of technology is very, very hard indeed to stop the spread of. For governments looking at this technology and how it's being used in their populations at the moment and then seeing this open letter from some of the most influential people working in tech at the moment, have any of them responded by saying, you know, maybe we should take a pause or maybe even we should ban the use of this technology altogether? We've had words occasionally. Um, the White House said a, a very vague, non-committal thing of like, <laughs> basically, yes, the world shouldn't be destroyed by AI, which is great. It's, it's good to know they agree with that. But it doesn't translate to action. What we have had, though, much more of is governments waking up to the fact that existing regulations and existing laws do actually still apply to this technology. So, for instance, Italy stepped in to ban ChatGPT in the country for data protection violations. OpenAI hasn't revealed any details about the data they used to train ChatGPT, but based on previous versions of the GPT AI and similar research efforts around the world, Italy believes, I think plausibly, that OpenAI used significant amounts of personal data in training this. Europe has quite strict standards about what you can and can't do with the processing of personal data, 
that sort of thing is going to prove very tricky for some of these systems. Alex, I was interested to read that the open letter ended with this note about um, how we can enjoy this technology and enjoy a long AI summer, should it be controlled in in the way that the authors of the letter uh, see fit. What do you think a hot bot summer would entail? Um, There have been some pretty sweeping changes, even in my lifetime. The invention of the World Wide Web, the rise of the iPhone. You know, I, I, I am only 33 and I was born in a world where this was quite literally science fiction and now it, it, it's in our pockets. But I think my central case is that we should be thinking of this as like, imagine if the iPhone and the internet had been invented in the same year. It would have been a very big year, but it's not the end of the world. It is turbulent, but we come out the other side richer, more connected. I think there is that tail risk of very, very terrible harms, but there is also quite a strong upside risk, right? It would be quite nice if we developed an AI that you can just sit down and go, give for cancer, please, and it can think for a bit and spit out something that works. That that would be good, wouldn't it? These are just as science fiction as everything else we've been talking, but there are positive successes that this sort of radical flywheel technological change could lead to. And I think it's worth not losing sight of them. There could be some very good times in the future, but to get there is definitely going to look weird and turbulent. Alex, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Alex Hearn, and I recommend signing up to The Guardian's free newsletter, Techscape, which Alex contributes to. It covers social media, gaming, and the big tech stories in a way that's a little bit left field, often funny, and crucially, easy enough to understand that you'll be able to convince your mates that you know what you're going on about. That's at theguardian.com slash technology slash series slash techscape. Also, before you go, please give a listen to The Guardian's new podcast series, Cotton Capital, which traces the newspaper's links to transatlantic slavery. In the second episode, which has come out this week, our colleague Maya Wolf robinson goes to Jamaica to what was once a sugar plantation owned by The Guardian's founder, Sir George Phillips. You can listen to that wherever you found this episode. Just search for Cotton Capital. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producers were Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.